This is episode 24 of the No Limits podcast. Thanks for joining us again. The podcast is brought to you by Tangle Free Waterfowl. You work hard all year, anticipating the small window of time you get to spend in the blind. How disappointing is it then to get to that moment only to have your gear fail? You should never tolerate gear failure. Tangle Free delivers gear that functions exactly as it is designed to function every time, year after year. And you have heard me say, don't waste your hard-earned time and money on gear that only lasts a year or two. Head over to TangleFree.com for panel blinds, layout blinds, decoys, and accessories. And because you are a valuable No Limits subscriber, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. Just enter promo code PASSION at checkout, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, for free shipping. Think about how much you can save on bulky, expensive-to-ship items like blinds and decoys. You save on shipping, you can buy more stuff. Head over to TangleFree.com, promo code PASSION at checkout for free shipping. TangleFree.com, TangleFree.com. Is your coffee hunter-friendly? Do you really know where your coffee comes from? Who are you really paying to get that coffee here? And what are the political ideologies and agendas of the buyers and middlemen? What if I told you there is a coffee producer that buys directly from the farmer, cuts out the anti-Second Amendment, anti-hunting middlemen, supports the U.S. Sportsman's Alliance, and has a great-tasting, full-bodied, delicious coffee? Hunter's Blend Coffee is that company. We had Mike and Paul on the podcast explaining their revolutionary approach and their direct trade model. It was episode 16. Please go back and listen to that. It was an amazing discussion. This new purchasing model has put money back into farming communities, helped open churches, made healthcare available, and has absolutely changed lives, not to mention helped fight terrible anti-hunting and anti-Second Amendment legislation where we need it most in the courtroom. Head over to huntersblend.com coffee.com and use the promo code no limits all one word at checkout and get 10% off of your order you're like me you're going to buy coffee anyway why not have it delivered to your door from a company that has your your hunting and second amendment rights in mind and supports your right to hunt and save 10% in the process great coffee great mission huntersblendcoffee.com The podcast is also brought to you by Revelation Outdoors Waterfowl Ministry. The Revelation Outdoors mission is to help spread the gospel of Christ through waterfowl hunting. We leverage several different mediums or delivery methods to do that, either through our social media pages and our Passion of Pursuit short film series that is produced by Revelation Outdoors Waterfowl Ministry and Motion Culture Media. Our favorite way to share the way we experience Christ in waterfowling is through live presentation either at men's events, wild game dinners, or other places where sportsmen and women gather. We have been invited to speak at events all over the country and we absolutely love connecting with our fellow sportsmen and women and talking about how God changed our lives not through religion but through a personal relationship with Christ. We're not religious guys and we stress that. We are guys just like the rest of you And we have found that when we are able to break through a lot of the religious fog that surrounds us, we're able to show the simplicity found in God's plan of salvation. If you have an event coming up and you need a speaker, we'd love to talk to you. You can connect with us on social media or on our Revelation Outdoors website, revelationoutdoors.com. Okay. My guest today is John Devney, Senior Vice President of Delta Waterfowl. John and I have been friends now for coming up on probably 15 years, and he has a wealth of knowledge on the challenges surrounding duck production and duck hunting. 
Today we talk about John's background growing up hunting and fishing in Minnesota and how he came to work at Delta. We talk about the unique value proposition that Delta brings to the conservation and hunting conversations. Everything from balancing duck production within the farming and farming communities in the prairie pothole regions to CRP, WRP programs here in the U.S., the Alternate Land Use Services or ALICE program in Canada, the Farm Bill and other legislative initiatives. We talk about all that. We also talk about Delta's long-leveraged use of predator management as a conservation tool, where it is deployed, and why the results of predator management um, have really had such a big impact when used at the right time in the right locations. We discuss Delta's first hunt initiative and how that initiative is aimed at hunter recruitment of all ages, not only for our youth, but anyone regardless of age who has never hunted ducks or geese. Delta's first hunt initiative is making great strides and increasing the number of waterfowl hunters. And that conversation actually brought us to a very interesting crossroads because for those of us, those of you guys like me, that hunt increasingly crowded public ground, it would seem that hunter recruitment is not a problem. In fact, it would appear to be just the opposite. Um, there's another issue in play, though, and that is public access and the, the decreasing levels of public access. So John and I discuss how public access problems compounds and impacts the hunter recruitment issue. Really, really interacting, interesting perspective. And look at that whole equation. We then talk about the overall conditions across the prairie pothole region, and what impact might the flooding conditions across the Midwest have on duck production and duck hunting this year? John's been a great friend of mine for a long time, and we as waterfowlers are truly fortunate to have John and Delta working on policies that impact the future of ducks and the future of duck hunting. So let's get going with my buddy, John Devney, Senior Vice President of Delta Waterfowl. Well, let's get started. Man. So we're, we're going to get down into, uh, you know, the conservation battle and, and the mission, our conservation mission. But, John, tell us how you got started, where you grew up, and how you started uh, working with Delta Waterfowl. Yeah, Joey, I, I grew up just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, so you're not from Mississippi. See, I'd always had your accent pegged in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, it's it's either uh, it's either uh, Mississippi or uh, what's that town north of uh, what's the town on the north side of Lake Pontchartrain? Oh yeah, that's my town, Mandeville. Yeah, uh, yeah. is it Mandeville? What one of those places? One of those places around New Orleans has this distinctive accent that I can pick out in an airport anywhere. But yeah, it's none of those. Mm. Mandeville Covington is just north, so. <laughs> but yeah, no, I grew up in Minnesota. Um, I was lucky enough to have a dad that took me duck hunting. Although uh, I think it's a little different. It's a little different for kids today than it was when I went for the first time. My dad oh, took yeah. me. My dad took me when I was four. Told me not to step in cow pies and threw a burlap sack over me. Um, but somehow it became sort of my driving, one of my driving passions in life is, is duck hunting. So grew up, grew up just outside of St. Paul, spent, you know, most of the time as a kid hunting, hunting big water for diving ducks, bluebills, mm. ringnecks, redheads, canvasbacks, um, 
you know, places like Lake of the Woods, Leech Lake, Winnebagosh, um, and that's where my dad and I spent most of the time hunting until, you know, I got a little, got a little older, got off to college and actually started hunting puddle ducks a little bit. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, but it was that from that very early age, it was, you know, it was the thing that I spent lots of time reading about, lots of time dreaming about was duck hunting. And, yeah. and it's just, you know, lucky set of circumstances got me to, be in the position I am today where I get to work on something I care very deeply about every day. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I bet, um, I bet you can still remember the smell of that burlap sack. Probably. Yeah. I smell the cow pies more than the burlap sack. <laughs> now, where did you, um, where did you go to school? Cause were, were you, cause if I remember right, were you in journalism? Yeah. Well, I was, well, I mean, it's kind of a funny road, Joey. So, I went to I went to a little itty bitty Catholic college in central Minnesota called St. John's University and and uh, you know majored in political science and philosophy because that philosophy degree is pretty useful. Yeah, um, yeah. No and doubt. and my plan all the way along was to go to law school. And you know my father was a lawyer. Um, you know, my mother was very involved in politics and that was sort of the pathway is I'm going to go to law school, except, you know, I had pretty good grades in, in college. Um, but you know, the LSAT wasn't exactly one of my finest moments in history. Um, so my, you know, and law schools are pretty competitive and, and, I didn't really get into the law schools I was excited about. So, you know, I had to do what everybody else does when they graduate from college or should do and went and got a job and ended Work. up, yeah, I, you know, ended up doing a kind of bunch of sort of messy stuff. But, uh, you know, about six months after I graduated from college, I got, you know, was looking for work and walked in and into a family owned boat dealership on the east side of St. Paul and, it just happened that they were looking for somebody they weren't advertising and got a job there. I was also a manufacturer's rep for a bunch of hunting and fishing products. And then I was doing a little bit of freelance writing. So, you know, I was doing really three things there hmm. uh, right after I graduated from college. Quickly was sales manager at that boat dealership and was, you know, writing, writing a little bit. It, you know, nobody was going to accuse me of being a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, and then managing my little my little manufacturer's rep firm one day a week. So working at the right. boat dealership six days a week and repping one day a week. Now, did you did you like the writing part? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I did then. Uh, you know, I think one of the things beyond duck hunting and burlap sacks and cow pies um, my dad instilled an interest in reading instilled might be understated a little bit. He, right. you know, he, you know, I remember when I was probably like nine or 10 years old, my dad brought me the complete works of Jack London, which at that oh, time man. I couldn't get my hands around. And, and he said, read this. And, and so and my parents were both big readers. So yeah, I, I always loved reading due to this day. And, and so the writing thing came pretty naturally and pretty comfortably. Um, and it's, you know, when I get the chance to really dig in and write here today, I, it's still something I very much enjoy. 
Yeah, it's something that I didn't um, I didn't really grab onto when I was in school or or anything. But when I started writing for the blogs for Passion of Pursuit and Revelation Outdoors, and then when I started writing the scripts and voiceovers for our Passion of Pursuit films that are out there. Um, that's, I really just kind of fell into it and, and realized how much I enjoyed it. And so, um, it's really something how you just kind of fall into your passions, I guess. Um, not that I'm saying writing is a certain, a passion of mine or a passion of yours, but it's just something that I enjoy doing now that I never really thought that never really gave it two minutes thought while I was in school. So but the the writing the writing aspect is if i'm not mistaken is how you met uh jim and rob and or not how you met him but eventually how you kind of started that was the the starting point of your pathway at delta correct yeah it is i mean i um you know i'd been a member of delta for a few years which in the mid 90s i was one of very few just weren't right. many many folks aware <laughs> of delta there but you know i'd read a bunch of the work that delta had done and finally found a way to become a member and and then yeah and it it a outdoor show uh, game fair in anoka minnesota in august of 1998 i was renewing my membership and jim and rob were working the booth and i said you know I'm doing a little free. At, at that time, I'd left the boat dealership and was looking for the next thing. And and I said, you know, I'd love to, you know, donate some articles for the new, what was at that point an eight-page newsletter. And right. they said, well, geez, we're kind of looking for somebody to do that sort of work. And, you know, within, uh, you know, that Monday, I'd been Lloyd-Jones, who ran the U.S. office at the time, mm-hmm. had reached out to me. Um, and did the resumes and a series of three interviews and, you know, November 12th of 1998, I started first day here in the Bismarck office with Delta Waterfall with a nine page job description. Wow. God, I tell you what, God's plan is just something when you sit, when you get to, you get, start getting down the road and like things don't make sense while you're making the journey. And then you turn around years later and you're like, okay, now I get it. Right. Now I get it. So it, and I guess now as senior vice president coming up through the ranks, that's gotta be such a, such a, a benefit because you, you've had your hands in just about everything there now. Right. Yeah, I mean it's in you know it's really interesting if you look at if you look at the you know pathway for guys that hang around in this field long enough what happens is most of them come up as biologists and then transition into other roles with the organization. I mean it you see guys that were good biologists, good researchers that then go on to become fundraisers. Well, my background is, you know, my pathway has been totally flipped. You know, I came in on the organizational support side of the mission, uh-huh. uh, worked on the early, you know, the, you know, making the switch from a newsletter to a magazine, uh, working on our membership and direct mail program, uh, you know, being in the early years very intimately involved in the event system. Mm-hmm. Uh, being engaged in the major gift program all the way along, it I, I think it has been a real benefit, Joey. And, and yeah. the thing, the thing that I think is so meaningful about that is, you know, I it it's still really part of me is when, 
you know, we measured every single thing in $30, $25 memberships. And that right. wasn't that long. It, yeah, it's a really long time ago. It was more than 20 years ago. But at least personally, it doesn't feel that different. And so, you know, I think I think what it's done for me is, and, and remember, we were an organization that didn't have a chapter system, had right. a teeny tiny membership. And, and so, you know, I think what it's, the benefit it's provided to me is always being, you know, wanting to stay in contact with as many members as I can and, and be as supportive as I can and get out and be with our volunteers in the field because, you know, frankly, where Delta is today from where it was 20 years ago has got precious little to do with me. It's got everything to do with them. And, yeah. and so I think that connection and sort of, you know, consciousness of where we are were to where we are today um and and the importance of real human beings and duck hunters is a part of that i think is is incredibly valuable yeah and so i'm glad you said that because you know i have been involved with our local mandeville covington chapter here really since the i guess the third year it starts so 10 i don't know 10 12 years 13 years now um, and it's the one thing that, so a couple of things, I, I always kind of, um, attached Delta to the blue collar, true, let's slog it in. Let's, let's walk in. If we got to wade through mud, we'll wade through mud. It's the blue collar guys that you just, man, you feel like you've been in battle sometimes after you just throw decoy, you know, you got drag decoys to the hole and, and you just, you, you fight it out and there's nothing easy about it just the guys that'll roll their sleeves up and do whatever it takes. Um, that's, that's the kind of guys that we are as an organization from top to bottom. I mean, anytime I had a question about an event, um, if I could, Brian King was our regional guy at that time. If yep. Brian was at an event and I couldn't get him, I could always pick up the phone and either get you or Rob or somebody I mean, this is like the, the president, and at that time, you were vice president, I think. Yep. Um, but these these are two guys that run the organization. And, man, like we would talk about event challenges for about two and a half minutes, get that out of the way, and then we're talking duck hunting. Like, we couldn't get each other off the phone. I mean, and so that's just the kind of organization that we it, – it seems like Delta has never really gotten away from their identity. And, and I guess that's what I liked about it the most. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's we're a lot bigger organization today than we were then, right? Yeah, but, but it just doesn't feel like it. Yeah, but, I mean, I think that's the key, right? Um, I mean, I know it does for you because you got to deal with it all. But for us, just so you know, on the, the you know, in the trenches day in, day out, um, down at the, the local level, it never feels like we're so big that you can't get an answer from somebody. Well, and I think, I mean, I, again, I think that's, if you look at the bulk of our leadership team, they're all guys that have been here a long time and right. they're all duck hunters and, and we know what's important and, and ultimately what's really important. And, and I've reflected on this a lot over the last couple of years and working in the policy world, whether you're talking about the policy world or the donor world or the member world or the volunteer world, relationships are, relationships matter. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of the fact, I'm delighted to hear that's the perspective, Joey, because that's certainly 
that's certainly the way we want to be be engaged with our members and volunteers. Yeah, yeah. And so now, like you just you you alluded to it, most of what you're doing is policy work, right? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, it's it, it depends on the day. You know, when you're a guy, at, in in we're still a fairly modest sized nonprofit. Um, you know, the bulk of my day is spent doing two things. One is working on public policy and working with major donors. So, um, and believe it or not, they're more similar than they're dissimilar. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's, you know, that's, I made the shift here. I don't know. It, that's a date I don't even really recall amazingly enough, but you know, that we needed, representation on policy files we were backfilling with good experts on the on the um on the sort of organizational support side and and they moved me over to policy and and you know that probably seven or eight nine uh, maybe ten years ago i guess and so that's where i'm spending most of my time is trying to use delta's uh, voice amplified voice of the members and duck hunters out there to achieve good outcomes for ducks and duck hunters and all sorts of policy forums. Check. So that's a that's a pretty good segue. Um, why don't we change gears a bit and talk to me about, or not not to me, but if if there are listeners out there that aren't very familiar with Delta and our conservation mission, and why don't we start at kind of a fifty thousand foot level and talk about the the history of the organization and where we are currently and kind of what's on your radar and how, what what types of projects or initiatives are we are you guys um, involved in to to really you know reach that mission? Yeah, well, I mean, the missions, the the history and missions, pretty fascinating, Joey. I mean, you know, the organization traces its roots all the way back to nineteen eleven, but. Really, in earnest, it got started in 1937, and it got started with James Ford Bell, who is a gentleman that started uh, General Mills, big company most people are familiar with in, in Minneapolis. Um, James Ford Bell had bought this big piece of property on the Delta Marsh in Manitoba, primarily out of his love for shooting canvasbacks, and and. You know, as being a very wealthy American industrialist, you know, just kind of plopping himself in to the Delta Marsh, he quickly got sort of pushback from some of the locals saying, you know, why is this rich American coming and shooting all our ducks? So, <laughs> even back then, huh? Even back then, yeah. And, and, but James Ford Bell, it's pretty fascinating. If you read, he was a, he was a really interesting man, incredibly bright. But, but very conscious, too, I think is the right word. I mean, he, he understood that, you know, not just in the way maybe a guy like I would understand it is, um, you know, if these people don't like me, they may burn my house down. Right, right. <laughs> he, he understood that he had some responsibility to the place and the people that live there. And so he, he made a commitment to him is that he was going to raise and put back two ducks for every duck he shot. Um, and Which even back then, John was like, you know, the the duck numbers then. Of course, nobody was counting them, but uh, from a just a perspective of where you were standing, uh, why why would we? Have, I mean, there's so many of them. Why would we have to do that? So to have that foresight that we're taking a resource off that we need to replenish times two, I, I, I just 
if you stop and think about to have that type of foresight then is really amazing. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, well, and remember, we were just coming out of the dirty 30s, so there were right. times there where duck populations were really low. But even with that being said, I don't think it dismisses JFB's vision. And it, I, you're right, it was an incredible, it was incredible leadership, it was incredible vision. Yeah. But so, but, you know, the way that James Ford Bell set out to do that was the way that you would, do it if you're involved in agriculture as well. We'll raise them and get them out of here. So they, they started a hatchery program. And the one thing that they couldn't do with the hatchery program was raise canvasbacks in captivity. Um, and, you know, being a man of means. Now, why like, is that? You know, I have no earthly idea. It just didn't um, work. just didn't work. Um, but, you know, being a man of means, he had the ability to reach out to Aldo Leopold. Mm. And and they struck up, a, you know, struck up a dialogue that ultimately uh, led to Leopold joining James Ford Bell at the Delta Marsh in '37. Leopold, of course, was not a big fan of hatcheries and said, "Well, if you want to do something substantial, what you should do is start a research program uh, here with this uh, this facility." Uh, to learn more about these ducks. And, and James Ford Bell, being a bright guy, recognizing he was within amidst greatness, yeah. that's where it started. And in the next year, uh, Aldo Leopold's, one of his prized graduate students and very close friend and confidant, Hans Albert Hochbaum, went to the marsh and started the research program. Now, for, for people that – now, I know the history of Aldo and why that name is important – Give us a little bit of background on Aldo Leopold and why that was such a substantial relationship to establish. Well, if if our education system is not requiring the reading of San Coney Almanac by Aldo Leopold, we are failing our children. Um, I mean, remember I told you my dad handed yeah handed me the uh, Jack the complete works of Jack London that weighed in it. 763 pounds. Uh, you know, San County Almanac's probably a 120-page book. Um, but what it tells us in in very well-written, not in a sort of science-y technical way, uh, the magic of nature and the, the very early understandings of ecology. And in Aldo Leopold, I mean, it, it's pretty... Talk about guys with vision. I mean, Aldo Leopold understood even back then that if we wanted to achieve conservation outcomes, we had to work with the people that own the land, right? Yeah. Which was which was pretty remarkable in those times as well. So, I mean, you know, Aldo Leopold wrote San County Almanac, certainly regarded as the, you know, father of modern game management, mm -hmm. uh, was instrumental in, in figuring out how to manage white-tailed deer, as an example, had his fingers in everything. But you know, that's the sort of leadership and vision and, you know, one of the most iconic names in conservation that was right there at the beginning of starting the Delta program in 1937 and 1938. Yeah. And, and like I said, just to have a mind around conservation at that time, like for na for us now, it's obvious because number one, we have so much information, we have so much access to information immediately and so many people telling us what they think it means. I mean, depending on who you listen to on the news, the world's going to end in 12 years. Um, 
so you know we've got 12 years to fix this uh, climate change it's an existential threat and all this other nonsense um, but to have I, I just I, it's hard to put myself back you know 1930 whatever it was 36 39 late 30s to say hey we've got to start putting some of this stuff back um, I just again, those guys that had that sort of vision are just super amazing. To yeah, me. The, you know, just to have that then, and then carry that on through now. I mean, Delta, you go back to 1911. That's the oldest conservation waterfowl conservation organization on the planet. Right. But yeah, so it's just it's just amazing to have that mindset back then. You know, you think of all the things they had to worry about back then. Um, to think of that is just, I think, truly incredible. Well, and, you know, we just talked about, you know, being conscious of where we've come in the last 20 years. I mean, I I think as an organization, we're always conscious about sort of our origin and history with James Ford Bell and Leopold. I mean, right. uh, you know, Leopold means a great deal to me after just working on a farm bill, as an example. And, and James right. Ford Bell's model of putting two ducks back for every one you shoot is, is sort of where we're hoping to go with intensive management. So, you know, it's that sort of consciousness of, you know, being founded by great men with great vision and then doing your best, you know, every day to reconcile with that leadership, I think is, it's a pretty wonderful thing. Yeah. And so taking that conversation forward to today, because we do as, as an organization truly stand on the shoulders of giants here, that did have an amazing vision. Um, where talk about where Delta is today, as far as number of chapters and and members, and then we'll talk and just kind of roll that into the value prop, and then some of the initiatives that we're uh, really passionate about. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny, Joey. When I started here a little over twenty years ago, we had eight chapters and probably under two thousand members, and that might have been pretty good Enron accounting. Um, right. I don't, you know, we had very small membership, um, and and we didn't have a chapter system. We had eight events. We never had a chapter in 1998. Um, you know, today we're over 60,000 members, um, and I suppose the chapter numbers up around 300, 350 now. Hmm. Um, in places that. You know, I wouldn't have imagined there would have been Delta chapters 20 years ago or Delta supporters, you know, take a place like Utah or Idaho or, um, you know, the desert Southwest or, you know, right. <laughs> uh, you know, Pennsylvania is an important state for us and, and North Carolina is an important state for us. And obviously the core of the duck hunting world, you know, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, Tennessee mm-hmm. in the upper Midwest too, but it's it's been pretty amazing to be here remembering what it was to see what it's become and it and it's you know what it's really born of is the passion duck hunters have to frankly give back and and be engaged in something they really really love and care about. It's the amount of time and energy that volunteers give to this organizations. It's pretty astonishing and yeah and and that's that's what's really changed the organization from where we were 
when I arrived in November 1998 to where we are today. Hmm. Talk about kind of the value prop. And so you're talking a new or prospective uh, committee or chapter members. Um, how do you position that to them to really light their fire and get them get them excited to volunteer and go out and create other volunteers and and raise money and do those sorts of things? What's that What's that look like? Well, I mean, you know, we we went through a big strategic planning exercise, Joey, and, and I'll be honest, you know, the first number of strategic plans that I was, you know, engaged with here uh, in my various roles at Delta, you know, strategic plans are one of those things we did. It was a task. It was not sort of cultural. Yeah. Um, and Jason Tharp, who I know you know as well, yep. Chief yep. Operating Officer, uh, about six years, six, seven years ago, said, you know, that, that's not frankly good enough um, and, and led us through a very rigorous process. And, and what it did was, I think, made us really think about who we are in, in what we could do for duck hunters. And, and that was a, it was an important moment because at that point, Delta had become sort of a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. Um, we were doing things that probably didn't make a lot of sense. We probably weren't as efficient as we could have been. We didn't know why we did things. Mm. Um, and, and Jason really forced us to look at every decision we make and everything we do through the lens of what is what does it mean to a duck hunter? Mm. And and I remember sitting in communications and marketing meetings just because of my tenure and being around a long time. And, you know, we were trying to figure out, you know, trying to really find simple ways to describe who we were. And it, it was one of those, you know, two-day meetings that never felt like it was going to end. And it, mm. it did, and it was going to end with not a great outcome. And Finally, I just shouted, well, let's be honest, who we are, we're the Duck Hunters organization. Yes. And, and that sort of was, it was sort of an important point because it reflected everything we wanted to be as an organization. And I think it reflected kind of the way you did earlier, Joey, it reflected how the, how Duck Hunters viewed us as well, right? So, yeah. so when we think about what Delta does, that adds value. And, and let's be honest, we're in a world where we've got a big, effective organization in Ducks Unlimited. Uh, we've got the Fish and Wildlife Service involved in duck management. The state agencies are involved in duck management. We don't need to replicate the things that those people do well. We've got to find ways to add value. And, and so what we really sort of honed in on is what are the, the unique things that Delta does that are meaningful to duck hunters? And and that is one, our twin mandate, I guess, for lack of a better word, which is to be make sure we're working both on behalf of ducks and duck hunters because we saw the decline in duck hunting, and we can get into that later. But, you know, duck hunters, duck hunter numbers were declining faster than any duck species, and we didn't think it was getting talked about very much. And, right. And then obviously we got to take care of the ducks because, you know, no ducks, no duck hunters, no duck hunters, no ducks, right? And so that sort of twin mandate. And then you look at what we've historically done really well, I think, is, you know, our research and now our delivery of intensive management through predator management and hen houses, uh, making sure duck hunters are well represented in policy forums from Washington, D.C. to a 
municipal building somewhere yeah. on the east coast. Right. Um, you know, we've got the largest waterfall hunter recruitment program. We're still doing great waterfall research, um, trying to influence habitat through public policy that we think has the best chance of affecting habitat at landscape scales. And then, you know, and then have our chapters help us deliver our mission through Waterfall Heritage Fund in, in their communities, which is a pretty, pretty unique and pretty unique sort of approach to uh, the chapter and event model to have our our chapters and volunteers be real stakeholders and investors in our mission in their communities. And that that is one of the the if if it's still the same now um, the chapter model is that's that is your biggest source of of revenue correct uh, yeah it's it's it certainly is and 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 the beauty of it is and i think when we were thinking about chapters and events when we got started because we came late to that game i mean du pheasants forever turkeys had all been running banquet programs for 20 years frankly right. we didn't we had no clue what we were doing but one of the things that we realized, I think, very early on is that, you know, the chapters are going to be an incredibly important source of revenue and members. But perhaps as importantly, if not more importantly, is, you know, if, if we're going to have a youth hunting or we're going to have a hunter recruitment program, we can't deliver that out of Bismarck and Winnipeg. That has to be done in places where people actually live. Right. And... <laughs> And if we want to that's be pretty a, profound, John. Yeah, and and if and if we want to be affecting public policy that is meaningful to duck hunters, we also have to do that work where people live. Mm -hmm. live. So, our chapters are an important source of revenue and members, but they're also an incredibly important part of our mission and getting engaged in local issues. I mean, we were involved in uh, filing an amicus brief on Catahoula Lake, which. Is yeah. in going through a long and protracted legal battle. Um, I don't think I would have been aware of that um, mm -hmm. had it not been for local Delta volunteers. And in those, you know, this place, you know, Lake Ophelia National yeah. Wildlife Refuge in Louisiana, we would have never known that it was being proposed to eliminate Sunday hunting on that refuge if it wasn't for volunteers. And that, yeah. so, I mean, we can only be at our best when our members and volunteers are eyes and ears and our mouth on the ground to help impact policy and issues that are really impacting duck hunters every day. That That is so, and so any, if you're listening to this episode, that what John just said is so important um, I kind of equate it to listening to voice a customer for you know the organization that I work for now, um, but it, being all the way up in Bismarck and even knowing what Lake Ophelia is down here is really impressive. Um, and the only way that you do that is listen to what your members are telling you um, as far as issues go, and that I, I guess that's what I'm talking about is you guys. You never lost sense of who you were, where you came from, and what, if it's important to your local members, it damn sure ought to be important to the organization. And that is super, super important. I'm, I'm so glad that you said that. Um, and another thing that you said earlier when you were talking about um, 
predator management. I, I know, um, talk about, number one, the impacts of, of predator management, kind of define that and what that looks like. But there, Delta was, uh, we, we always got a lot of pushback and kind of, to be honest, some black eyes for our work in predator management. Um, and the one thing that I was always impressed with is, look, we're not doing it we're not going to make decisions based on where the political winds are, or where we may score points with different different groups. If the science says that it's two things here, if the science says that it works, we're going to do it. And if the results are not what we expected them to be, we're going to step back and look at it and say, you know what, maybe maybe we need to do that a little bit differently. We didn't get the impact that we thought we were going to get, but I think nothing kind of defines that better than the struggles that Delta has, and I'm assuming still has, with predator management. Uh, no one is going to complain about a hen house or a wood duck box, but there's a lot of people that are going to complain about predator management. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, when we talk about predator management, what we're talking about is trapping one animal to make more of another, right? And, right. and in this day and age, um, maybe you could have done that in the 40s or 50s or maybe even the 60s, and people wouldn't have had much to say about it. But, yeah, it's it's potentially the most penultimate <laughs> yeah. uh, anti-politically <laughs> correct thing you can do, right? right. But, but what we, you know, what we know is, one, is when we started that work in the early or in the mid-1990s, we knew duck nest success was struggling. We knew predation rates were really high. Um, we knew the traditional approaches to weren't, weren't significantly benefiting nest success, which is what drives duck populations year in, year out. And so we said, well, let's try it. And, and, you know, my boss, Dr. Frank Rohr, longtime scientific director, now the president chief scientist at Delta, the funny story about it is Frank told the board they were out of their mind crazy, yeah. that it would never work. Um, and by the way, the, you know, some of the previous research said it worked and some of the previous research said it didn't. So it was pretty unsettled scientifically. Mm -hmm. And when we started the research in 1994 and, and keep kept expanding it, you know, it demonstrated it worked and, and it doesn't always work, doesn't work in every place and every, every time. But, you know, the overwhelming majority of the research we've done has shown that it it's very effective at increasing that success in, you know, often two to three fold. So, you know, from our perspective, um, listen, the Prairie Pottle region is not the wilderness. Uh, it's not going to go back to the wilderness. We're not right. going to re we're not going to see, you know, we're not going to take millions and millions and millions of acres of private land seed it back to native prairie and have buffalo grazing on it. So this right. is kind of the landscape we've got. And in in places, there are places that would, you know, ducks and duck hunters will benefit from the application of predator management in a very sort of focused, targeted manner. Right. We're making sure we're using our members and donors dollars effectively to, to that outcome. But, but back to your point, Joey, that the, the it's always been driven by good science. I mean, we've been working on trying to figure out how to increase hatching rates with uh, canvas backs and other overwater nesters with predator management. And I'll be honest, we haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. 
Um, and so, you know, the research continues and we're always learning ways to be more efficient, more targeted and more effective. But we just, we think, you know, we think it has a, we think it has a role to play. It doesn't have a role to play equal to the habitat work that we need to do in the prairies, but we think it, we think it has an important place and it needs to be prioritized. Well, and it, it really, it's, it's no, it's a tool just like anything else and where and when and how you apply that tool is different depending on look in really super wet years. Um, and I may be oversimplifying it, which I'm really good at doing. Um, but in really, really wet years, um, maybe not that big of a deal to do as much trapping because the water itself tends to be your predator management. Um, and in large, large scale, big swaths of, of grasslands, um, maybe not as important as when you get on a small tract where there's just a little bit of standing grass. Those nests are a lot easier to find when it's dry and those predators can go anywhere they want and when they don't have to look as hard to find those nests, it's a great tool, but it's just like anything else. You need the, you need to leverage the science that tells you when, where, and how much to apply that tool. Exactly. I mean, you know, we, we stay out of landscapes that have lots of grass because those landscapes will be doing pretty well. Yeah. Um, we focus where we know ducks are going to struggle, have low, low production. And, and, you know, it isn't, it isn't, you know, nobody at Delta has ever advocated we wipe out every nest predator from Des Moines, Iowa to Edmonton, Alberta. No. Uh, you know, there's probably, based on our best understanding of the landscape today, there's about 150 candidate sites for predator management mm-hmm. across the whole of the prairie pothole region. And But we can raise a heck of a lot of ducks applying that treatment on those 150 sites. Yeah. Now, you mentioned... Um, hunter recruitment and the number of duck hunters going down. I certainly haven't seen that in the patch of public ground that I hunt. As a matter of fact, they've gone up. Um, as and you know, have to race and have to race people to the duck hole. But I, I know globally, nationally, hunter recruitment is a huge, huge focus. Talk a little bit about because um, I want to get into some of the programs and projects and and things that you, I, I think that the first hunt initiative. Uh, is one that our chapter was very successful with. Talk about um, that program, and then we'll get into some of the the farm bills and, and working wetlands and Alice and that other stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at it, the the decline of hunting and, and even more profoundly the decline of duck hunting is real. And, and, you know, I think you make an important point, Joey, and I remember when we published an article in our magazine called The Looming Crisis a couple, couple three years ago now, yeah. I mean, yeah. We got reamed on our Facebook page um, because because a lot of people's experiences is just like yours, right? It's that right. how can you be talking about less duck hunters when you know there's a you know fist fights at the boat launch? Well, and Brian Leach called and said, you know, you set off World War Three down here. You need to come clean it up. And I went down and spoke at the regional meeting, and we talk about all sorts of stuff, but we spend a lot of time talking about this. The, the challenge is, especially in places like Arkansas and Louisiana, where you still have lots of duck hunters, is they don't have as many places to go as they used to. That's right. And so the analogy I used at, at Leach's regional meeting was I said, listen, 
if you had a hundred rats in the Superdome, and now you have ten rats in a shoebox, you still have ninety less rats. <laughs> right. And, and that's essentially what's happened is is opportunity and access has been compromised. Yeah. It isn't that we have more duck hunters now. We feel like we have more duck hunters because we're bumping into them. But the reality is, there is no doubt, there is no disputing, we have less duck hunters. Um, and you even know, the duck stamp numbers will tell you that if you just take a second to look at it. Right. And so, but the the real challenge that we see, Joey, is if you look, if you run this thing out in in the baby boomers who participated in hunting, fishing at great rates, if you run them out and they term out, which they all do, and, and the numbers are incredibly, incredibly frightening. Mm. You know, hunters get to about, you know, about 70 years old and they're done. Mm. And we're facing a demographic cliff in hunting that is, it, it should frighten everybody. And and that's because, frankly, I think we've done a pretty, pretty poor job as a community recruiting hunters over time. Yeah. And... And, you know, and I get it. I mean, I, I think about, you know, my role as a father, which is quite a bit different today than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And, you know, dad wants to go to the duck camp and he's going to go to the duck camp and, and maybe junior can come on, you know, the youth weekend when right. all the rest of the juniors are around. But it isn't, I think, you know, if you're, if you're a duck hunter in Memphis who's leasing a rice pit, in East Arkansas, and the only way you can do that is by you and five of your buddies going in together to afford it. There's no room for junior. Yeah, right. And and so you know this has become a big problem. And you know we saw it and started first hunt in the early 2000s. And you're going to see some really exciting stuff from Delta here coming up with the big hunter recruit R3 push recruitment retention and reactivation. Uh, we just hired a full-time staff member, Stephen Sowell, from who's doing this work in Alaska. That, frankly, is going to move us light years ahead. And, but it has to be a focus because, honest to goodness, Joey, this thing can die in our lifetimes. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And so, what you're talking—it's really a compounding of a couple of problems. Um, the 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 number of duck hunters you are correct, is down. So in the, the, you know, in the Mississippi Delta where I hunt timber, um, it's a national wildlife refuge. And if there are, let's just say, a thousand duck hunters, and this place is 40,000 acres, okay, you can now, and just hypothetically, you say, okay, there are, you know, 20% fewer duck hunters. So now there's, there's 800 duck hunters. But they have closed access to half of the refuge, and that right. part's true. Right. So, so now where you had a thousand duck hunters spread across forty thousand acres, now you have eight hundred duck hunters spread across twenty thousand acres. Right. And I'm going to bitch and say because the place is too crowded. How can you tell me that there's fewer duck hunters? Right. Well, there are. So it's really a compounding of two problems. Public access is. We we went ballistic when they shut down. They, they, here's the trick. The antis, they don't want to shut the whole place down. What they'll do is they'll shut down access. Like you can't take your four-wheeler on this gravel road through 
the place anymore. You have to stay parked on the levee. And if you want to hunt, that's fine, but you have to walk four miles in. Who in the hell is going to do that? You can't. You'd die. And so they're really strategic about, no, we, we're, we're not going to, just for example, we're, we're not going to ban firearms. We're just going to make ammunition so expensive you can't afford it. So it, it's, it, it is not one single problem that you can focus a bright light on. It is a combination of multiple problems that you have to deal with on multiple different levels in multiple different ways. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that, you know, one of the things that we probably didn't do in hindsight, hindsight always being 2020 with that looming crisis article, was talking about, you know, at the same time we're going to be working on these hunter recruitment retention reactivation efforts and the need for it, we, I don't think we told the good story to our, our, our members and duck hunters at large that it, simultaneously we're trying to work on other opportunities to increase public access. Mm-hmm. You know, just last week, the Secretary of the Interior uh, increased access to Fish and Wildlife Service refuges by 1.4 million acres. Uh, the year before, it was 249,000 acres. Mm-hmm. The last announcement, 21 new opportunities on National Wildlife Refuges for migratory for migratory bird hunting. And now, unfortunately, and work I've got to spend a lot of time doing, and we've been engaged in this issue both in my role at Delta and being on the Hunting Shooting Sports Conservation Council that advises Secretary of the Interior and Secretary of Agriculture, is we we need we need better impact in places we know we need it. I mean, we've got a lot of refuges in Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas, Tennessee, North Carolina, California. Uh, that haven't got through that process yet. And it's going to be a heck of a lot of my time in the last week and a heck of a lot of my time from now until next May is going to be making sure that duck re- important duck refuges are prioritized in that opening because yeah. we can't recruit hunters if they don't have a place to hunt. Yeah, exactly. And we can't retain hunters if they don't have a place to hunt. Right. So. We, the, the two things have to happen simultaneously, and we're doing both. No doubt, no doubt. So you mentioned the Secretary of Interior. Talk about some of the, uh, like the Habitat Farm Bill and Working Wetlands and Alice and those things that uh, some folks may not know that Delta is just knee-deep and elbow-deep in. Well, I mean, if you if you look at where we spend money on Habitat, everybody's familiar with you buy a duck stamp, the Fish and Wildlife Service purchase Habitat with it, and Probably the, not probably, it's the greatest conservation legacy anywhere on the planet of duck hunters buying duck stamps. And and that has resulted in one third of the wetlands in the U.S. Prairie Pottle region being protected by a small wetland program. And Mm -hmm. not to mention refuges and everything else. But people would be amazed, I think, to know that the federal farm bill invests more money in conservation on private lands than any other mechanism in the United Mm -hmm. States. And, you know, you take programs like the Conservation Reserve Program. um, You know, the Conservation Reserve Reserve Program, Joey, in 2007, when it was at its peak, had 3.7 million acres of nesting cover on former cropland. Right. 
that costs the American taxpayer $120 million a year. Mm-hmm. $120 million is 12 times the annual budget of Delta Waterfall. It's about 65% of the annual budget of Ducks Unlimited in one state. Mm. And so the federal farm bill and the opportunity to leverage good outcomes for ducks and duck hunters in the federal farm bill, there is no venue, there is no arena more important, frankly. No, no. Um, CRP and WRP are the heart, soul, and lifeline of waterfowling in the continental United States. Well, and, I, and, I, and I'd add one more in Swamp Buster. Yeah, um, that was currently protecting two thirds of vulnerable wetlands, and and so the federal farm bill and the implication it has for ducks on the prairies and ducks in the wintering ground and staging areas is incredibly, incredibly profound, and and so Delta's vision, and this came from Jonathan Scarth, who was a former uh, president of Delta, then mm-hmm. came back as a senior vice president back in politics in Manitoba now again. But, you know, if we want to achieve big, large-scale habitat, we need to work through ag policy because, number one, the landscape is almost all privately owned. Right. Uh, you know, prairie pothole region, you know, depends on where you are, but certainly over 90% and lots of places over 95% privately owned. Mm-hmm. So it's working farm and ranch land. And if we want good duck outcomes, we've got to find ways to work within those ag operations and work with farmers and ranchers to get to good outcomes. And, and you know, that led us to Alice. That Alice led us to working wetlands. And working wetlands is now leading us to grow in Manitoba. And with the, with the primary focus on working wetlands and grow being fine ways using these big public policy tools to conserve small wetlands and cropland. And, in you know, hopefully the next time you and I talk, uh, we got it in the federal farm bill and working on implementation right now, but we're hopeful that we can have a new $25 million a year program to pay farmers to preserve the smallest, most important temporary and seasonal wetlands in the U.S. prairies and, and you know, wild-eyed guess that would conserve, you know, 55, 65% of those wetlands. I mean, that's, that's nothing we could achieve, but by any other mechanism than the federal farm bill. Right. Right. And so what you just said, I want people to understand how important that is. When you talked about how much of the prairie pothole region is privately owned, right? So what that means is you, we have to find ways to strategically work with landowners and farmers that does not negatively impact their yield or their livelihood uh, because you can't just go buy all the property that it's it's it it is impossible number one and number two you're running families off of their farm I, I, that just that doesn't sit well with me and so what that means is with the uh, WRP, CRP, the, the, the working wetlands here, and then Alice, which is the counterpart to <clears throat> excuse me, CRP in Canada, finding ways to work with landowners and farmers to leave their 
sections of those farms that are marginal at best in yield um, and, and leave those for nesting cover that and, and compensating them for that part, right? Um, but you're not changing the production of that piece of ground or that farm. And it's just, that's, man, the worst thing that you can do is go to these farmers and say, here's, here's some money. Here's what we're going to do with your farm. Uh, no, <laughs> I think we, as well as others have found out that's not a very good model, not a good approach. Um, but the way, just the efficiency at which you are fiscally responsible to uh, duck hunters, to members, but also to the farming community, uh, I think it's great. It's, it's just that's the way that we have to move forward. Because, uh, again, you can't just buy all the land. You can't do it. Right. Well, and, and I mean, the other thing about it is, you know, let's assume I'm right. Let's assume NRCS comes up with the resources they hope we hope they do. That $25 million dollars. Joey, how much of it's going to go to Delta Waterfall? Mm. Not a penny. Not, not a dime. Yeah. I mean, that's a role for USDA. We want that money to get in the hands of the farmer. We're not we're not advocating for that to right, right. come through us. We just want the outcome. And, and, and frankly, in many places in the Prairie Pothole region, USDA and NRCS is far more popular than a Delta Waterfall truck coming up the lane. <laughs> and so, so I mean, yeah. this is, you know, this is about leveraging, you know, using good ideas and a relatively modest investment to leverage really good outcomes for duck right. hunters. Right. And, and so what it, what the reason I say that is that it's so important. I have a limited amount of money to donate to conservation organizations as anybody else does that's listening. And so all, I think really the call to action here is to investigate where your money is being spent and make sure it aligns with what's important to you. Um, we've got a, we've got a sponsor here on the podcast, Hunters Blend Coffee, that, um, they have a new direct trade model with the their farmers to where the coffee doesn't pass through six and seven sets of of hands to get here and by the way a lot of those hands are anti-second amendment anti-hunting and so now that they've established that direct trade model um, it comes directly to the united states and then a lot of that money hunters blend donates to the u.s sportsman's alliance which is an incredibly effective organization because they fight the battle where it needs to be fought in the courtroom. It's just nobody knows about them. Um, and so it, I guess what I'm saying is really investigate where your money is going and how are, how are you or how are we as a duck hunting community benefiting? And as long as those things align with you know your strategic plan of putting more ducks on your straps – if that if that's what you want, um, then go for it. So talk about real quick in the last little bit of time that we have, just kind of the 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 current situation on the prairie pothole region, duck numbers, what you're seeing, trends. What are some of the projections? Yeah, it's 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 been an interesting year. It you know lots of folks, lots of places are struggling with lots of water, and mm. and we never we never gripe about that in the prairies, and it's always funny because. You know, you know, the old chat forums or Facebook forums or, 
get calls and duck hunters saying, well, oh, this is going to drown out all the duck nests. And I said, there has never been a time that a duck <laughs> manager in the Prairie Pottle region has complained is, about too much, too water. much water. And, yeah. you know, it's hard on our farmers, but yeah. it's never hard on the ducks. So the situation we've got this year is, is kind of the way it more often than not happens. It's, it's crazy wet in South Dakota. And we haven't seen duck number reports yet, but our expectation is that duck numbers are going to be off the charts and production is going to be off the charts in South Dakota. Well, they just did the aerial survey, right? You just don't have the numbers yet. Don't have the numbers yet. And that's yeah. kind of like having access to the nuclear code. Nobody <laughs> shares it until it's needed. Yeah, exactly. Um, the football, as it were. Exactly. Now, in North Dakota, it's, you know, the North Dakota Game and Fish does a survey that they've done for a number of years and for a long number of years, actually predates the federal survey. Um, but it's interesting. Their numbers say that the pond count is average, but the interesting thing is there's not one place in North Dakota where it's average. There's places that are crazy, crazy wet where we're going to have really good duck production. Then we have other mm-hmm. places that are really quite dry and we're probably going to have poor production. So it's going to be a mixed bag in North Dakota. Yeah. Uh, the Western Dakotas in Montana sound, which is not, you know, especially the Western Dakotas, the highline of Montana, sort of traditional pothole country. Those places are usually pretty dry, but when they're wet, they're incredibly productive. Mm. Um, so we should look for good things really out of the U.S. prairies as a whole, recognizing we've got some dry areas in North Dakota. Will that compensate, you think? I mean, will will birds that typically nest in the boreal forest or in, you know, southern Saskatchewan, will they find their way south to better nesting? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah, we, we see it more, some species more than others. Uh, yes, with pintail, no for canvasbacks. Right. It's sort of what we know. Yes, for redheads, uh, less so with other ducks. But so, yeah, we're, we're in a situation where the U.S. prairies are in great shape. Manitoba and Saskatchewan are pretty dry. Alberta's a little bit better, it sounds like, mm-hmm. although I haven't seen any data. So, yeah, it's going to come down to what we can crank out of the U.S. prairies. The good news is uh, that when the U.S. prairies are wet, we can produce a heck of a lot of ducks. We've seen that time and time again. We just mm-hmm. Our wetlands resources are in better shape, we, although we've got a lot less CRP. Uh, there's still CRP out there. Hatching rates generally are better in the U.S. prairies than in the parklands of Prairie Canada. Um, so I'm pretty hopeful. It's not going to be... You know, it's not going to be those high water years, Joey, that right, we had right. in 2010, 2011, 2012, yeah, and 2013. Yeah. But I'm I'm pretty hopeful that we're going to have better production than we've had the last couple of years. Right. And then, so here's the here's the last question, and I ask this of all my duck hunting guests: If you could only hunt one species in one set, like for me, I always say it's it's greenheads and flooded timber. Right. That's mine. So. If the Lord Almighty comes down and says, thus have the Lord said, you can only hunt one thing in one place, what would it be? I'd, I'd try to renegotiate that. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've had the... Uh, the incredible Only John Devney would try to overcome op- <laughs> o- overcome objections like Zig Ziglar with the Lord. <laughs> but I mean, I've I've had 
I've had the good fortune to see lots of cool stuff and hunt ducks in a lot of in very interesting places. And, and yeah, I mean, green timber mallards is pretty awesome. And, and yeah. hunting diving ducks on big water is pretty awesome. But, yeah. you know, it's interesting, Joey. I the, Maybe I'm growing up in my old age or something, but um, it's it's become way more about food than food for me than it is about killing stuff these days. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and so I tell you the hunts that I, that I really enjoy. Um, and frankly, I haven't had very many of them in North Dakota the last couple of years because we've been pretty bloody dry Mm -hmm. is I love a cattail marsh, green wing teal, mallard in pintail hunt on, and I will tell you, I have a place and the absolute optimal conditions is a bright, sunshiny day. Mm-hmm. Southeast wind from 5 to 14 miles an hour. And in where I can shoot, you know, a couple of green heads, maybe a sprig, mm-hmm. and round out with green wing teal. But if it's only green wing teal, I'm not going to grouse about it because I know no. that I'm going to take those buggers home and, yeah. and we're going to have great eats. So, yeah. I mean, that's... You know, you know, it isn't as exotic as some would have. And, and listen, I love hunting flooded green timber every chance I get. But, you know, that sort of homey me and the dog on the oh, yeah. back of a duck boat in a cat, oh, yeah. North Dakota cattail marsh shooting green wing teal, that makes me pretty, pretty happy. Yeah, there's times when we go out and the mallards just don't do it, but we come back with full limits of wood ducks. Hey, not not a problem because the, they will be smoked and picked and put into a duck and andouille sausage gumbo that will absolutely curl your toes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Hey, are you going to be down here again anytime soon? You know, I, I, I was, you know, this year I didn't do Leach's regional meeting because I was just down there in December. I had, right. the good, I had the good fortune to have a wonderful speckle belly hunt when I was down there. Mm. Thank you, thank you, Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, I was also on a hunt that was not particularly good in the southwest part of the state, where I'm pretty sure we set the Louisiana harvest record on red-breasted merganser. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Uh, that was the first time that ugliness had happened in that duck blind. Oh, um, but, um, I, you know, I'm sure I'll be down there at some point. Just no sort of no immediate plans for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and the other thing is um, we travel so much now that we're filming uh, hunts and putting them out on our YouTube channel for Passion or Pursuit um, that we get pretty close to you sometimes. So I guess my ask would be let's just keep comparing, comparing our calendars and see if we can't maybe make those two axes uh, intersect at some point in a duck line somewhere. I'd love to do it, my friend. Oh, man, I'd love to do it. John, you've always been a good friend, man. Always enjoy talking to you. Uh, I just want to thank you so much. I know you're super busy, um, but we're going to we're gonna jump now, and I just I thank I'm going to put all of your con- – well, not you. I'm not put your home number on the webpage. I'm going to put all of your uh, your contact information in the show notes so that if, if folks want to get involved with either contacting their legislators to help them support farm bills and, and things that you guys are working on, they can do that. But also to get involved in a local chapter, that is the best way that you can make an impact. And I'm going to make sure that I put all of the, that contact information in the show notes. 
Thank you so much, Joy. Thanks for all you've done for Delta over the years. Oh, man, it's been my pleasure, and I enjoy continuing to do it. Thank you so much, John. You bet. John, thank you so much for taking so much time out of your incredibly busy schedule to sit down with me today to discuss really the yeoman's work you and your team at Delta are executing uh, on behalf of every single duck hunter every single day. Thank you so much. Uh, I truly hope that our paths can intersect again very, very soon. Thanks again, John. We'd like to also thank Edge Duck Boats to Hatsu Outboards, Rite Shotguns, Apex Ammunition, and Sitka Gear for supporting Passion and Pursuit and Revelation Outdoors Waterfowl Ministry. Without the help of these companies, we could not do what we do. So I humbly ask you, our listening audience, to support the companies that support us. We appreciate that. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a five-star rating wherever you listen. It helps us continue to keep climbing up the rankings. And if you wouldn't mind, please share the show with a hunting buddy. We'd appreciate that also. And your support is showing because we were just named as one of the top ten waterfall podcasts all across the interwebs by Feedspot. So, again, thank you all so much. Keep on listening and sharing. We love you guys. That's all the time we have. Until next episode, bye-bye, y'all.